the reading of the Scriptures. We'll be reading Psalm 2 in its entirety. So I invite your reverent attention and hearing of God's Word found in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Uh, certainly uh, much of uh, the issues of being successful in life have to do with uh, being on the right side. I mean, Christians, it has to do with being on the right side of, of uh, history in heaven. Uh, but if you think back in, in your life, even as a young child uh, playing kickball, were you on the right side? Were, were the better players on your side? Uh, oftentimes, uh, we become adults. Do we, do we choose the right company to work for? Uh, sometimes we don't know whether it's the right company, but uh, do they have a strong enough balance sheet, enough assets, enough cash flow? Uh, just the simple fact of uh, choosing the right side it's really where the psalmist takes us this morning. Uh, he presents us with really the greatest choice of all time, uh, reminds us of what the right side is, uh, that that side will win uh, and will never suffer defeat. Uh, the context of uh, the psalm is a revolt. And God responds and rehearses His appointment and decree of His appointed ruler and exhorts uh, the rebels to be wise uh, and submit to his appointed ruler or be destroyed. Kind of a stark choice, but nonetheless, uh, God responds to the revolt and tells the rebels what they really ought to do. But for us as Christians, it's a reminder, uh, are we on the right side of uh, heaven uh, in history? Uh, as uh, you know from uh, our study last week, Psalm 2 is part of the prologue to the entire uh, Psalter. So along with Psalm 1, it forms an introduction uh, to the psalm. There are a number of parallels between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, but uh, perhaps uh, the greatest uh, in my own mind is uh, how, how the text uh, begins and ends. If you look at Psalm 1, verse 1, how blessed is the man. And then uh, the 12th verse uh, of Psalm 2, how blessed uh, are all who take refuge in Him. 
between those two is uh, uh, the wisdom of uh, how you are blessed by God. Uh, it's not just that we have a beginning and an ending, but that's uh, what stands in between. That tells us and gives us the sort of choices of life that lead to success or failure. Uh, not just any failure, but eternal failure. Failure, world without end. Uh, the first psalm has more of an individual flair to it. Blessed is the man. Uh, psalm 2 has more of a national as well as an eschatological flair to it. It's dealing with nations, uh, companies of people who revolt against God, uh, the, the reminder of uh, God's wisdom uh, to all of those. Uh, I take the psalm personally to be indirectly messianic. Uh, by that I mean, uh, I think the immediate fulfillment is the great King David. Uh, he was experiencing an earthly revolt in his kingdom, uh, but uh, by indirect fulfillment, the greater uh, fulfillment is in Christ. And we know that uh, because of uh, the New Testament use of the old. The New Testament writers take this psalm and make it applicable to Christ and all of the revolts that he faced. Uh, and those revolts, of course, go on today. And so uh, this psalm is addressing all of the rebels of uh, time and history uh, who are trying to throw off the rule of God. Uh, well, we begin in verses 1 to 3 with a perceived threat to the rule of God. Uh, God rules. Uh, he has agents, vice regents who rule. Uh, certainly on this earth, he has appointed rulers who rule in his place. But here there's a perceived threat to the rule of God. I, I use the word perceived uh, as a figure of speech because if you understand who God is, there are no threats against God. No one could ever threaten him. Uh, so there are only perceived threats uh, as, uh, as we would view them. Uh, there are really no threats to heaven because nothing can unseat heaven, of course. Uh, the interrogative that begins of the text, why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples defying a vain thing. It speaks to the folly of insurrection and that God is addressing His subordinates. The nations are in an uproar. Uh, this word uh, speaks to great commotion. Uh, I think we see it in our country today. There's great commotion. Uh, it's likened to our modern-day political rallies with signs and speeches uh, protesting, uh, in this case, protesting God. Uh, people carrying signs, down with God. Uh, let's unseat Jesus Christ. Of course, we none of us have ever been to a rally like that, but we see it all of the time in our culture. People who are on the wrong side of heaven. They're attempting to throw off the rule of God. I mean, think about it for a moment. Uh, people who uh, intuitively know that God uh, makes life and creates the soul. Obviously, uh, procreation is a natural phenomenon, but the creation of the soul is a divine event of incredible significance. And that we are created in the image of God. And so what are people who hold uh, to murder, of course, uh, trying to do? Really overthrow God. Uh, they believe that life is in their hands and they take it in their whims. The entire abortion industry 
is really an ultimate uh, offense to God, uh, trying to overthrow his rule, saying that uh, we have our rule, God has his, and we, we choose our, our rule. Then an individual has a right over their own body and soul, and the Bible says they do not, uh, because God is the creator, and he certainly is the creator of the soul. The entire movement uh, in our culture of the self-identification of gender I don't like the word gender because to me that's a grammatical term, but uh, the way it's used today, people self-identify. I know what my biology is, but I choose otherwise. Where does our biology come from? Our chromosomes that mark us, ultimately they come from God. For a person to say, God has his choice, but I have mine, there's nothing more an attempt to overthrow the rule of God, to self-define ourselves when God defines us. It's what's going on here. Not only in Psalm 2, but every day in our culture. People trying to throw off the rule of God. And they're devising, the psalmist says, uh, a vain thing. Uh, If you look at uh, uh, the first verse of the second psalm, devising, uh, that word is uh, used in Psalm 1 and verse 2 of the wise man who meditates day and night in the Word of God. So these people are meditating on overthrowing the rule of God and their meditations ultimately turn into plans and ultimately violence of action to overthrow God's reign. And God says it's vain. That their plans will come to nothing Uh, because God rules and that is an immutable reality that can never be changed. Uh, Nevertheless, the kings are united in resistance and in their conspiracy, uh, Psalm 2, verse 2. They take their stand. Uh, The word word there really is a figure of speech. It means they're in opposition to God. They oppose God. They want to throw off His rule. Uh, the content of which is to uh, become free of God's uh, God's reign. Verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So it's a coalition or a union of the ungodly. Again, I've never been to a rally that's directly, explicitly in opposition to God, but I've seen many of them which implicitly are in opposition to God and the way that he has constituted life and the way life is to work. Uh, so this, this event is uh, not only going on in David's day, it goes on in the day of Christ, as we shall soon see, but it's really every day in our culture. People trying to throw off the rule of God. It's interesting that John uh, alludes to uh, this portion of the of the psalmist in Revelation 11:18, and the words and the nations, John writes, were enraged against God. Uh, context is uh, the second coming of Christ and judgment. And that's why they're enraged, uh, because God has come to judge them. He's also come uh, to destroy them. Uh, They're enraged because they're in opposition to God, but now the gig is up. They have no place to run and no place to hide. And God will come to destroy them. And they're enraged. 
It's an illustration of the folly of that uh, in the verse that sets the context for Revelation 11:18, so 15th verse of the same chapter. And the seventh angel sounded, and three, uh, pardon me, and there arose uh, loud voices from heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So at the second coming, it becomes visibly uh, evident that Christ is the great victor and the kingdom is given to Him. And all of His opposition will be destroyed. That's why they're angry. That's why they're enraged. Uh, that's why many of our political rallies today are ultimately implicitly attempts to throw off the rule of God because people are unhappy uh, with how God made them and what He made them for. Uh, the Christological import of the psalm is again uh, most uh, pronounced uh, in the New Testament. As the psalm has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Its immediate fulfillment is the great king of Israel, David. But the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ, uh, our Lord's uh, ultimately uh, appointed ruler. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Uh, Luke cites the greater fulfillment of uh, the psalmist here. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? And then again, Acts 4.26, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together and now here Luke is explicit against the Lord and against His Christ. Uh, so at the uh, crucifixion uh, was the uh, plot uh, to overthrow Christ. So ultimately the fulfillment, Psalm 2 is in our Savior. Uh, the context of... Uh, Acts 4 is the revolt of Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and of course uh, the peoples of Israel against Christ, uh, our Lord's uh, ultimate uh, vice regent of government and rule. A beautiful uh, uh, analog to all of this in uh, Acts chapter uh, 4. Uh, and the 28th verse, uh, that in the gathering of this revolt against Christ, uh, Luke uh, gives a theological summary of, of uh, what it means. To do whatever thy hand and thy purpose is predestined to occur. Uh, that's why the revolt is so vain. They were fulfilling the will of God. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, accounted uh, responsible and set up for destruction uh, to do everything that God purposed and predestined to occur. That even rebels fulfill the will of God to their own ruin. Because, of course, heaven in the ultimate sense has no opposition. Uh, because none can withstand the rule of heaven. Because God is sovereign, this greatest of revolts in the crucifixion of our Lord only advanced the divine will, exposed the futility of the resistance, and encouraged the witness of the apostolic company. What a remarkable expression of the sovereignty of God. Even the rebels doing the will of God 
advancing his reign. Uh, certainly true in the book of Acts because it sets in motion the greatest missionary movements of all time, pressing the boundaries of the spiritual reign of God to the ends of the earth. Again, majesty of God, the rule of heaven. Applicable to our witness of Jesus Christ in our own culture. Uh, if you witness to Christ, eventually you come across a rebel, someone who's in opposition to you. Either explicitly or implicitly they oppose you because ultimately they oppose God and the rule of God of whom we testify of in our witness. Uh, but the opposition will not win. Uh, it's why we uh, take the gospel to the end of the earth, even if it means death and ruin for our lives, uh, because uh, we fulfill the will of God and His commandments towards us, and we, we press the boundaries of the spiritual reign of God and conquering the earth through the spreading of the gospel. Uh, it's why the, uh, the psalm begins, how blessed is the man who does not stand or sit or walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Uh, but his meditation is upon Christ, uh, the ultimate ruler, uh, who could never be unseated, never defeated, and that uh, we are his servants. Uh, and we serve him because ultimately the specter of his eternal dominion encompasses everything about our lives. And even confronting opposition, uh, we know that we cannot be defeated. Uh, it, it is uh, the summary of uh, be on the right side. And if you are in opposition to God, you're on the wrong side and you will lose. And that's true, uh, again, of so many of, uh, of uh, the movements in our culture, uh, whether it be the abortion industry or self-defining gender. Ultimately, they are rebels against the rule of God. in the ultimate scheme of things, uh, because they're in opposition to heaven, they will lose. And that is why we have in the next great movement of Psalm 2, the response of heaven, verses 4-9. to nine. Uh, Notice how heaven responds. Who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I would encourage you never to laugh at your opposition. Uh, it's not good manners, among other things. But God does. He simply laughs at his opposition. Why? Because uh, their actions are uh, totally futile. and They cannot win. Uh, first, the one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs. Uh, enthroned in heaven... He who sits in the heavens. Uh, obviously a figure of speech. Uh, God doesn't take a seat. Uh, the point is that he is king. And he rules over everything and everyone, even rebels, uh, perform and do his will. Uh, the anthropomorphism highlights uh, the reality that God is the only sovereign. He's the ultimate sovereign. All throughout our culture, we have different uh, positions of rule. Uh, mayors and senators and congressmen and women, uh, presidents or prime ministers, but ultimately, there is but one throne and one ruler. Uh, and 
God sits on that throne and God rules. The anthropopathism in which uh, the psalmist is attributing human emotion to God uh, is contempt at the revolt. Uh, God, God laughs. God laughs at them because resistance to the divine will is futile. Uh, it, it is a reminder of what happens when you take the side uh, that's in opposition to God, uh, that heaven turns against you. Uh, to capture a, a word from a previous study, Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10, speaking of the rule and reign of God, that he declares the end from the beginning. And of course, you and I know everything in between. And things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And so the will of God is accomplished every day. Even the opposition accomplishes of the will of God because uh, ultimately nothing can oppose God and everything will accomplish uh, His reign and rule. Uh, but to oppose God uh, is is a dangerous choice to make. And so the wisdom of the Psalter is be on the right side, and heaven is always the right side. And so God speaks to them. He speaks to the opposition uh, in verse 5. In his anger, terrify them in his fury. Uh, the content, of course, is the divine... Solidarity with the earthly regent, uh, King David, uh, in a rehearsal of the appointment of the king uh, and the decree that so appointed him. Uh, notice, uh, notice verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Uh, it's the appointment or the installation of uh, the divine king. Ultimately, we take it to Christ. Uh, he uh, ascends to heaven, takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. Uh, but the divine appointment of kings and kingdoms are irrevocable. Uh, David was never unseated. Neither will Christ ever be. Because the decree is uh, irrevocable. And that men cannot unseat uh, those whom God has appointed because it's an element of uh, the divine decree, verse 7. The word decree, interestingly enough, uh, comes from the verb to engrave in stone. Uh, it's like our idiom that we use occasionally in our language. We etch something in stone. We don't literally etch it in stone, uh, but we mean it's certain. It's what we want to see happen. It means that the matter is fixed and certain. Uh, and so it is of the decree of the divine appointment of God uh, respecting his vice-regent upon the earth. The content uh, of the decree is most instructive. Latter part of verse 7. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. It's a coronation formula. Language that would occur at the coronation of uh, the king. Uh, had at his uh, installation and enthronement. Uh, allusion. There's an allusion here 
uh, to Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. Uh, Moses is to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Uh, that Israel uh, time of, uh, uh, of the Exodus uh, was installed as the firstborn of God. Unique relationship that God put His blessing upon Israel. The uniqueness of that blessing. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, I will be a father to him who will be a son to me. The sonship of the divine King David. Uh, of course, David was not literally a son of God, but because of the coronation formula, he is as a son of God in the uniqueness of the relationship and the divine appointment. Uh, the, the begetting, uh, sometimes controversial, again, is a figure of speech in which the installation or coronation is compared with the begetting of a son reinforcing the uniqueness of the relationship and the elevated status of the king and son. Quite common in the ancient Near East, but very important for us, uh, especially as it relates to Christ, the Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God. He was never begotten in our language, but He was the eternal Son appointed to reign. And the coronation formula marks him out as uh, unique, totally, uh, as the Son of God, appointed to rule by God. Uh, very interesting that Matthew alludes to this text along with Isaiah 42 in verse 1 at the baptism of Jesus as well as the transfiguration of Jesus. If you have your New Testaments, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 3. Uh, in verse 17, uh, baptism of our Savior. Matthew chapter 3, the 17th verse. Behold a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father is placing His imprimatur of blessing upon the eternal Son. If the opposition is the wrong side, this is the right side. If the Father blesses the eternal Son of God, He's the right side to stand with. When you choose Him, you've chosen the right side of heaven. At the transfiguration, again, Matthew chapter 17, in verse 5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But there's an addition here. Hear Him. As, as the people of God, we should hear Christ. Because He tells us what the right side is, what it means, and what the right side is to do. Everything else is in opposition. So again, the blessing of God the Father upon God the Son marks out what the right side is who the right person is. And what we do to show to the world that we have chosen the right side. And what is that? We hear Him. 10,000 voices to hear in the world in which we live. Ultimately, uh, we must uh, hear this, this voice, uh, this word, blessing uh, the Son. 
It confirms our Lord uh, as an exalted member of the triune Godhead that's the Son and that He is the Messiah appointed by God to rule. To rule forever. Never to be unseated. Uh, this text uh, from, from Psalm 2 is uh, alluded to again in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, and Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Let's turn to simply one of those, the book of, book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, notice, notice the description of Christ. Verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, in other words, in the context of Psalm 2, he cannot be defeated. He upholds all things by the word of his power, even the opposition. Incredible. But so Christ is incredible. When he made purification of sins, he sat down to the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And now, now look at the quotation. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten him, and I will be a father to him, and she, he shall be a son to me. The ascension, the resurrection, the coronation of Christ uh, as the ruler of heaven and earth, that he's the right side. Uh, that all of the rebels in our, in our culture, all who attempt to throw off the reign of God, who do not like how God made them, who are not happy with some aspect of their lives, uh, when they oppose God, they're opposing His regent Christ. They're in opposition to God. Uh, here God is choosing the side that will win, uh, and everyone who chooses Christ will win in Him because of his eternal dominion. Uh, and that engages the promise. The promise of universal dominion. Psalm 2 and verse 8, Ask of me and I will give the nations as thy inheritance and the very ends of the earth as uh, thy possession. Uh, the language here is that Christ is the uh, final installation of the promise of perpetual rule. It's interesting when you study uh, missionary movements, uh, certainly uh, perhaps what stands out most in my mind are the great movements in the 19th century. Why did they go to the ends of the earth? Uh, why did they leave the safety of their cultures uh, to go? And, and in many cases in those days, uh, when they went, it was a death sentence because there were no modern-day inoculations uh, against uh, diseases and ravages. Uh, many of them died on the mission. Why did they go? Because of the promise of eternal dominion given to Christ to be a part of the greatest uh, victory of all time, pressing the boundaries, the spiritual boundaries uh, of, of the gospel. This is why they went. Because eternal dominion was given to Christ and they represented Christ in the gospel. Uh, the reality, really, of the, of the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus says, go to the ends of the earth. All authority has been given to me. Here it's been given. Uh, Psalm 2 and verse 8. I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. 
because of uh, crucifixion, Christ will inherit them all. He rules over them all now, uh, but someday it will become visible and physical, as well as violent. Uh, the means of uh, uh, the means that our Savior will prosecute. Uh, the opposition is in verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. It's a figure of speech telling us that the opposition cannot stand, that he will break them. Uh, let's remember the words of Winston uh, Churchill said of John Foster Dulles, who's the only man he knew, carried about his own china closet with him, always breaking, always being shattered. What will happen to the opposition? Uh, much as if you could take a baseball bat to your grandmother's china. Wouldn't have a chance, would it? Neither will the opposition. He will break them as a rod of iron. He has positioned as king and power to advance his reign until it covers the totality of the earth and all of its inhabitants. That his power is unrestrained and unrivaled. This is why the opposition in verses 1-3 to of Psalm 2 are engaging in a futile thing. They are confronting one that they cannot beat. It will totally destroy them. They have taken the wrong side. Who should they take? The side of uh, Him whom God the Father blesses at His baptism, the transfiguration. That's the side that will be blessed. Everything else that's in opposition will be destroyed. Uh, it's very interesting that John, uh, once again, in the book of the Revelation, uh, alludes to Psalm 2, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5. Uh, and she gave uh, birth to a son. It's a reference to the Messianic community. Uh, has a son. And notice what John says of that son. To rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Uh, it's an indirect reference to his crucifixion. Seemingly, at the time, an apparent defeat. But God cannot suffer defeat. He was caught up to God. It's his path to reign and to rule. Caught up to God and to the throne of God for his service uh, in the divine appointment. That's the side that will win. Uh, implicitly, the psalmist is telling us to leave the opposition. Take the evolution bumper sticker off your car and bow before Christ and to come to Him. Take the blue sticker with the yellow equal sign off your car. Repent and come to Christ. Or you will be like a piece of clay confronted with a rod of iron. The summons implicitly to flee to Christ. Uh, and the declaration of uh, the Apostle John, Revelation chapter 12, uh, that Christ at seemingly the greatest point of defeat was really uh, on the way to the throne. It was caught up to God, to the throne of God. Uh, again, the context, the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ 
as the ultimate ruler of whom Psalm 2 engages. The fulfillment means that the reign promised in Psalm 2 has begun fulfillment in Christ. That's what really John's telling us in Revelation 12. The other place that uh, that uh, John alludes to uh, Psalm 2 is in uh, another context of the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. You can see the allusion very pointedly there. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And then John uses another very violent metaphor. He treads the wine press pardon me, of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. It's a consummation of the victory at the second coming when all of his enemies are decimated. Wrong side, right side. One will lose, the other will win. Have you... Have you chosen the right side? Have you come to Christ? Have you heard the word of the Father? Do you recognize that there's only blessing in the Son? Again, wrong side and right side. The psalmist is telling us about what the right side is and what will happen to all who are on the wrong side. To choose Christ because the Father has set his blessing upon God the Son. The reality that implicitly heaven is warning us if we do not stand on the side of Jesus Christ. Warning us about all the movements in our contemporary culture that try to throw off the reign and the rule of God. That violate, for example, Genesis chapter 2. The definition of marriage. Some people in our culture do not like that definition of marriage. They have their own definition. That's what it means to try to throw off the reign and the rule of God. To choose your own. Uh, but you will lose. Because Jesus will win. It's His appointment. It's His way. It's His eternal dominion. It's the summons to reject the wrong side. Because you will be defeated, destroyed. To choose Christ right side. Uh, that heaven is warning us because it will win. And then he heaven does something that's entirely like heaven. It extends an invitation to the rebels. Verses 10 to 12. The psalm ends though with an exhortation to wisdom that there's still time to leave the wrong side for the right side. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Invitation. God is gracious. There's still time. Reject the wrong side. Come to the right. Come to Christ. The appointed ruler, the appointed blessed ruler by God the Father, uh, of whom it is said that all of the nations will be given to him as his inheritance. Let's look at a couple of the exploratory facts of this 
a beautiful reality to all of us as Christians. Book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Uh, context is Daniel is in a terrible place. Babylonian captivity. Uh, the emperor has a dream. His wise men at his court cannot tell him the dream. Daniel can, because God gives him uh, the revelation. Notice, notice how Daniel describes the grace of God in giving him the dream. Daniel chapter 2, in verse 21. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. What is Daniel telling us? That God is the right side. Every king, every prime minister, every judge, every, every city councilman or councilwoman or mayor rules by the divine appointment and ought to rule as an expression that God appointed them to glory and to bring honor to Jesus Christ. That's the right side of history in heaven. When Nebuchadnezzar comes to the understanding that David was given that wisdom by God, notice how he responds. In my mind, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan ruler. Even a pagan ruler is now going to tell us something of the majesty of God. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of God and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery to me. He's confessing the majesty of God. He didn't have his theology quite right, but he understood in the pantheon of all of the Babylonian gods, at the pinnacle was the God of heaven confessed by Daniel. That's the side to be on. All of the subordinate gods, or really no gods at all, ought to be rejected. But Nebuchadnezzar got it partly right. You and I need to get it all right. To serve the Lord of glory and to hear Him. There is an occasion, you know, in the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar becomes full of pride. And uh, God makes him like a creature. And then God in His grace restores him. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? This is a pagan king testifying of the greatness of God. Telling us as Christians that if we have chosen Jesus Christ, we're on the right side of history in heaven. It's an invitation. Uh, a text that closes with a beautiful picture uh, as God makes a peace offering 
I would remind you of the peace offering of this invitation in Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12, that it has a limited duration. At some point, the invitation will end. And Jesus will come and tread the fierce wrath, the wrath of God. Invitation still open. Look at the invitation, verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And uh, the text uh, gives us a beautiful picture of all who take his offer. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a cosmic eschatological invitation to come to the one appointed by God the Father of whom all the nations will be given as inheritance. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, the Masoretic text is literally all seeking refuge in him. The invitation to flee to Christ for refuge. Refuge from what? The violence of judgment. Uh, Kidner in his commentary in the psalm says of Christ that there is no refuge from him, only in him. And that's the invitation uh, to, to flee to Christ. Something of the great hymn, is it not? Rock of Ages. Cleft for me. A place to hide the ravage of the storm. The songwriter was... Uh, in the Lake District of England, when a violent storm caught him, he fled to safety and acknowledged that ultimately his safety was the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. He's, he's the right side, ladies and gentlemen. Everything else is the wrong side, on the wrong side of heaven. Everyone on that side will be destroyed. Everyone in Christ has refuge, safety. Let's a pause, uh, pause uh, on this thought for a moment because it's a journey and a destination. That's what I think it means, everyone fleeing for the refuge. It is a destination, but it's a journey. That every day that we awaken, Christ is our refuge. Uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 34, verse 22. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. One of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. The entire world is under condemnation, but all who take refuge in Christ will never face the judge. Never. We will never get a summons from the court because we are in Christ. Incredible promise. All who take refuge in Him that will not be condemned. In reading this particular psalm to Ron Stromberg, because he told me uh, that he read this psalm every day when he was in Vietnam, flying out of Thailand. Uh, psalm 91, verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. God is a fortress of protection. Notice verse 4, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark protecting His people. 
My friend, that's the right side. Everything else is the wrong side. Everyone outside of his castle will be destroyed by coming to save you. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. I'm always somewhat sad and yet amused when so many in our culture think that there's ultimate refuge in national government. I understand there's a role for government. I've read Romans 13. I get it. But ultimately, it's no refuge. It's only temporary. The only ultimate provider from safety and the wrath of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want refuge, flee to God. We must deal with the princes of this world that God has appointed over us. I understand that. I get that. But they offer no real refuge. In the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, every carrier battle group in the arsenal of the United States Navy cannot withstand him. And my friend, that's a lot of power. An American carrier battle group has more firepower than a lot of nations. Not against God. Not against God. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them away and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me, Isaiah says, shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. Now that's an inheritance. Comes to all who are in Christ. The right side and the wrong side. The nations in revolt change sides. Remember a number of years ago, even as a young boy playing on the playground, I wasn't very smart, but I was smart enough to know that uh, the guy that had the best kicker who could throw the ball farther and faster, who could kick the ball in the right place, that's the side I wanted to be on. Well, that's chump change. Eschatological, cosmic, national scale. Come to the Savior. Don't be unsettled by all the things you read in the paper. Don't be unsettled by all of the movements that seemingly are taking uh, grand ground and advancing. Uh, the inheritance has been given to Christ as his sons it comes to us by way of inheritance. Leave the wrong side. Come to Christ the right side. Because his side will win. And you will win in him as your refuge. And may God bless all of this in the grandeur of what it means theologically uh, by fleeing to Christ each and every day and making Him and confessing to the world that He is our refuge and safety from the judgment of God.